before we get started on Romans this morning, um, you had a handout in your bulletin this morning, and it was uh, in regards to how we can be praying for the persecuted church. Uh, today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And, you know, oftentimes we take for granted, um, I just, I find it very comical. It takes me very little time when I come back home to get readjusted to the American way. And, uh, you know, having, having preached and taught in a church in Liberia uh, for a week straight, um, you know, it wasn't, it, you couldn't say, it's, it's a little warm in here. Can you jack down the AC a couple notches, you know? And, uh, and yet here we, we think that, well, it's a little warm. Let's, let's crank down the AC. Let's, well, those lights are too bright. Let's kind of turn those down. And, you know, there, there are people, brothers and sisters in Christ, who've put their faith in Christ all over this world that can't even meet out in the open. I know of one pastor who uh, just that I've had the privilege of meeting years ago who has to meet 30 different times during the week to meet with his church, three or four believers at a time over a meal clandestinely that if they hear a knock at the door, they've got to hide their Bibles for fear that they'll go to jail or worse, be executed. And so let's just as a church right now, corporately take some time to pray for these believers in Christ that we're going to spend eternity with. You might be next to one of them singing praises to the Lord in eternity. And let's just take a minute to pray for them this morning. Lord, we lift up uh, our brothers and sisters around the world who do not have the, the freedom uh, to worship openly like we do. Uh, Lord, I pray for their safety. I think of um, story after story of, of folks who... Uh, have worshipped uh, you or, or been in a church service where bombers, suicide bombers, will come into the midst of them and blow up an entire chapel, an entire church, killing hundreds of people, women, children, and men. And Lord, I just, I can't even fathom the type of, of stress that that brings upon them in their daily life. And, and yet, uh, you know, Lord, you know what it's like to be tortured. You know what it's like to suffer. You know what it's like to be persecuted and abandoned and rejected. Uh, And these brothers and sisters in Christ feel that on a daily basis. And Lord, we just lift them up to you corporately this morning. Uh, We beg of you for their safety. We beg of you to uh, be an encouragement to meet their needs on a daily basis. And Lord, we pray for boldness for them because they have a lot more at stake when they share the gospel with an unbeliever than we do in terms of their physical safety, the safety of their families. And so, Lord, give them boldness to not be ashamed of the gospel. And, Lord, see them through these situations and give them wisdom to know where to meet and how to meet and who to share with and who to hold off on. And, Lord, just pray that you would just give them comfort and joy in your spirit and give them insight and understanding into your word that they may understand what is the hope of their calling. And I pray for them in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to start uh, a study on the book of Romans. Um, And just settle in. It's going to take us a while. I don't know if you've looked at Romans uh, recently, but it's 16 chapters. So we're we're not going to get through that in 16 weeks. Um, We might not get through it in 60 weeks. I don't know. Um, But we're going to take our time. And just my, my encouragement to you is if you're a person that likes to make progress and like finish things, we're going to get there, but just try to enjoy the process. Try to enjoy the process. There's a lot of good, neat truth along the way. And, and I think uh, it's always a fair 
question when, when I start a book study, why Romans? You know, there's 66 books in the Bible. Why this one? You know, why, why dive into this book? And so there's a couple of reasons I just wanted to share with you. Um, just in my conversations with the elders, we haven't been through this book in a number of years. I think Sunday school, maybe three to five years ago, uh, we went through this. But as a church, as a whole, we haven't been through this book. So I thought, hey, what a better book to kind of get into. Um, it's, such a, it's such a rich study. And, you know, one of the things we've got to remember as believers is that one of the main ministries of Bible teaching is to put you in remembrance of things that you already know. Okay. And so for many of us, this book of Romans is going to be stuff that we've heard that we know, but we need to be reminded. We need to go back to the fountain. We need to go back to the foundation in many ways. And and hopefully as we do, God will reveal uh, additional things to you, maybe similar truths, but at a deeper level than what you've seen before. And so that's the, the faithfulness of our God in that way. And so that's one of the reasons, you know, second reason book of Romans is Paul's Magna Carta. It's, it's his, um, Whatever you want to say, it's his most concise, um, complete explanation of what he taught on the mission field. And so it's just really important. There's something for everyone in this letter. In fact, as you just kind of work through the book, you know, a uh, quick overview, Romans 1 through about five and a half is, is talking about how an unbeliever, somebody who doesn't know that they have eternal life, how they can be made righteous in God's sight through the gospel. And it's not through effort and it's not through good works and it's not through coming to church. It's not helping old ladies across the street. Although I'd encourage you to maybe take up that practice if you can, but those are not the way that people get to heaven. What we find in Romans one through five is, is the message for the unbelievers. How can you obtain a righteousness from God that he'll accept on judgment day? And that's a, that's a, a message for all of us to remind ourselves of, but you know, it doesn't stop there. We get into Romans you know, five and a half, I say, Romans five twelve. the end of that chapter, we talk about what has happened to you as a believer is you have been identified with Jesus Christ. And we're going to get into much more detail of what that means, but that is important. That is something you need to know. That is something you need to base your life on as a Christian is you no longer are identified with Adam. You're identified with Jesus Christ. And that is important. God no longer sees you in Adam. He sees you in Jesus Christ. Your acceptance is based on that position. And so we're going to see much more in that area. But as we move on into Romans 6, Romans 7, Romans 8, the first part, we're going to see how does God take somebody, an unbeliever, who's put their faith in Christ, who is now positionally righteous, what provision has God made for that person to now live righteously? You know, it's good to have knowledge, but if knowledge is not impacting the practicality of how we live, then, then the knowledge is not benefiting us the way it should. Now, that's not to downplay knowledge. You've got to have knowledge, understanding of what God has provided for us uh, to actually live out the Christian life. And so we see in the first five chapters that God provides a provision for, the, for sin's penalty. Christ died for your sins so that you don't have to face the judgment. What we're going to see in Romans 6 through 8 is that God also made a provision for the sin nature, the power of sin in your daily life as a Christian to release you and free you from domination by the sin nature. We got to know that. That's where we live on a day-to-day basis. 
And so, and then we get into uh, God's big picture for his, for his nation, Israel, and his, and his bride, the church. We see that in Romans 9 through 11. And then as we move toward the end of the book, Romans 12 through 16, we get very practical instruction on how to live the Christian life, what it should look like when you and I are walking by means of the Spirit of God. And so we, we've got something for everybody in this book. And I would encourage you, if you've got friends that you're not sure if they're saved, the first five chapters of Romans would be a very great time to bring them to church with you so they can hear. Because what's going to happen in the first three chapters is Paul is going to get everybody lost. He's going to say there's nobody righteous. We're all guilty before God. And people need to hear that message because many people think, well, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't go with girls to do, and I don't swear anymore, and I don't do all these bad, sinful things. And so Paul is going to deal with the immoral sinner first, and then he's going to talk about the moral sinner. Those who say, you know what? Yeah, I don't drink anymore. I went to the, went to the 12-step program. I'm not, and all those rotten, awful people that get drunk, and they become a moral Center. They actually think they're better than themselves and they still don't understand. They don't have the righteousness needed to get to heaven. And then Paul saves the best for last because he, he hits the religious center. He hits the people who are trusting in their religiosity to get them to heaven, whether that's church attendance. And so it's, it's a message for everybody and we all need to hear that message. And so another reason I wanted to choose this book is because it shows Paul's passion in buy-in regarding the Great Commission. I'm going to bring a map up here because this is very important to see. You know, the, in Acts 1-8, Jesus says, I, I'll, I'll give you power and you should be witnesses, witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the end, uttermost parts of the earth or the end of the world. Well, this is a map of, of the Roman Empire it's at its greatest extent. And over here, we've got uh, Israel, just to kind of give you a frame of reference. And so we've got in here, we've got Jerusalem, we've got Judea, we've got Samaria, and then unto the uttermost parts of the earth is everywhere here. But as we see, as we, and sorry to turn my back to you here as I'm talking, but just so that you're looking at the map with me. Um, as you see, the, the spread of the gospel in the book of Acts was westward, was this direction. You'll see the, the churches of Galatia here, Asia Minor here, Greece, and down into Corinth, and then finally the church in Rome. And what we're going to see is that Paul bought into the Great Commission. We're going to see that through his, his words in this epistle because at the end of Romans, he said he had gone all the way to Illyricum with the gospel, all in this area. And you know why he wanted to go to Rome? He wanted a jumping off point to get over to Spain. And you remember what people used to think when you sailed off the coast of Spain, don't you? Like once you got over that horizon, you were dropping off the face of the earth. So I think in Paul's mind, I think he's thinking, man, I'm almost going to fulfill the Great Commission. I've just got that one more reach to Spain. And we're going to see Paul's heart was to get to Spain. Paul's heart was to fulfill the Great Commission. And, you know, we've got the same call today, don't we? And that's why it's meaningful to us today. This is Paul's heartbeat. This is how he thought. If we can think this way, we can flip the world upside down, just like they did in the first century. And many times we don't think this way. In fact, we rarely get out of Noonan. You know, in our thinking, uh, we rarely get out of the four walls in our thinking. And yet Paul is thinking, man, I'm going to use you as a base. I'm going to jump frog into Spain and we're going to fulfill this great commission. And Jesus is going to come back and we're going to go right, right into his presence. And so uh, that is one of the other reasons I wanted to look at the book of Romans. And then, as I mentioned, this, this is the most full and concise and complete equipping manual 
for the local church to fulfill its, its ministry in its local context. And what are we doing on Sunday mornings if we're not equipping ourselves to do the work of ministry? See, that's, that's the importance of this book. And so a couple of times in this book, Paul writes that, that God wants to establish believers. It means to hold them up, to fix them firm. And it's not so that we can be fixed firm in these four walls. It's that we can be fixed firm out there when the storms of life are blowing and, and, and the difficulties with people start happening. It's so that we're, we're fixed firm, we're established. And so we come here as, as fishing nets needed mending, which is, is where that word comes from, equipping in Ephesians 4. We get our fishing nets mended, and then we go out and we catch men and women with the gospel and we disciple. We don't, we don't just stop with evangelism. We go on and teach them. And so I think we're going to see this in the book of Romans. This is one of the main reasons we want to go through this is just, it's an opportunity for us to get better equipped to fulfill our ministry in this local context. A couple of quotes. Um, I just, I just like to do this at the beginning of the book, just to some names that we might recognize and what they've said about this book. Um, William Tyndale, uh, said this, no man verily can read it too oft or study it too well. For the more it is studied, the easier it is. The more it is chewed, the pleasanter it is. And before any English majors challenge, I just a direct quote. So that's William Tyndale that's using improper English, I guess. Uh, but but more it's chewed, the pleasanter it is. The more groundly it is searched, the preciouser things are found in it. So great treasures of spiritual things lieth hid therein. Martin Luther had this to say. Romans is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. Of course, we know Martin Luther's history with the book of Romans, don't we? That's where he understood justification by faith for the first time. And so um, a couple more quotes. Uh, Dr. Tom Constable, who's a retired uh, professor at Dallas Seminary, just said throughout the history of the church, the Christians have recognized this epistle as the most important book in the New Testament. And then one other uh, seminary professor who says this, this letter is arguably the most important document of the Christian faith. It stands behind virtually all great movements of God in the last 1900 years. So, when we read in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God and salvation, it, it truly is. It's like what D.L. Moody said about the gospel one time. It's like uh, a lion in its cage. All you got to do is open the door. The, let it out. <laughs> let it out. The lion's going to know what to do. And I would recommend getting out of the way <laughs> of a lion. But. And so real quickly, um, author, this is really uh, very rarely disputed, but Paul's the author of this, this book. And then we find is in terms of a date that he most probably wrote it, 56 to 57 AD is, is probably a good time frame for this book. And then also that final note, it was probably written from the city of Corinth, um, which we read. Uh, obviously, they have two letters written to the Corinthian church. Uh, Paul wrote um, to them that we have recorded in scripture. And so what do we know about the city of Rome? Let's, let's do a little history. For those of you that don't like history, um, just hold on with me. We'll get through it pretty quick. It's just we're trying to provide some context and we'll try to make it as interesting as possible. But, but obviously here's Rome. It just it sits over here on the western uh, coast of Italy. And so it was built on seven hills. You'll hear Rome referred to as the city on seven hills. 
Um, it's just along the east bank of the Tiber River and on the west coast of, um, of Italy. And so we see kind of the location there. Um, in terms of history, it was founded in around 753 B.C., but the early history that we have on the city is really hard to put together. It's unreliable because the Gauls had come in and ravaged the city in about 390 B.C., and destroyed the monuments, uh, which might have offered faithful testimony of the earlier period. You know, imagine if somebody were to come in and raid the United States of America and destroy some of the monuments or the Constitution or the artifacts that we have in the Library of Congress. It would be hard to... You could recreate some of the history, but some of it might not be reliable. And so that's what happened here in the city of Rome uh, due, to that, uh, due to the Gauls ravaging the city. We get a prophetic uh, description of Rome uh, in Daniel 7. Uh, described as a monster with great iron teeth and trod underfoot um, its enemies. And so uh, we see that played out in history because as Rome conquered people, they would capture the people they had conquered and enslave them. And so this slave labor um, ended up becoming the power of Rome. And in fact, they thought for, um, for many years, in fact, I think I bring this up in the next point, um, you know, they had estimated like 1.2 million people in the city at this time. Over half of them were slaves. So we're talking about 600,000 people who had been taken from different conquests over the years who had become slave labor for them. And as a reminder, when we looked um, at the book of Philemon, we looked at Onesimus the slave. um, Some of these slaves were very well educated. They fulfilled important roles like doctors and lawyers and and those types of things. And so um, it wasn't just, uh, you know, we have a mindset here in America of, of our slavery in our country and it's cotton picking or or farming, but this, these were um, educated, uh, working class people, and really for the, for the wealthy in this uh, society, a sign of nobility and wealth was that you didn't work, that you had slaves doing things for you. And so we've got to take that in mind, but um, this was the power of Rome, uh, this slave labor. And it was a melting pot because they were bringing people from all over that they had conquered, different cultures, which we'll see uh, led to different deities. They were very polytheistic, brought them all into one city, and then, and then tried to make it work. And it was distinguished for its wealth and, and luxury, but also for uh, its sinfulness. It's, it was very a, a profligate uh, society. In fact, I had heard somewhere in the history books that out of all the emperors that Rome ever had, only two were heterosexual. The rest were either um, homosexual or bisexual. It was just an incredibly profligate society that was really from the top down in that way. And so at this point in history, the capital had reached its greatest prosperity. Now, in terms of bringing it a little bit closer to home with our study, um, there was a Jewish settlement that arose in Rome. And it happened around the conquest of Pompeii. Um, there was a Jewish king, Aristobulus, and his son, who formed part of Pompey's triumph. So he brought them back to Rome. And then many of these Jewish captives um, and immigrants were brought to Rome at that time around 63 BC. And so what we learn about uh, the Jews is they were assigned a special district kind of out in the suburbs. And many of these Jews were made freedmen. They, for some reason, the Romans freed these Jews. They didn't keep them in slave labor, not all of them. And so they were assigned a special district and and given freedom. Um, They lived for the most part in isolation, uh, in some of the poorest parts of the city. And, and what we also know from history is that um, there were seven communities that, that ended up kind of fanning out from these initial immigrants brought back, and each had its own synagogue and council of elders. That's very important because um, in the days of Paul and, and the apostles, 
their typical model in terms of sharing the gospel was to go into town and find the synagogue and start there with people who had an understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. And so we see from history that there were seven um, communities uh, of Jewish people in the city of Rome, each with its own synagogue, each with its own council of elders. Um, we've heard this before, but one of the greatest contributions that the Romans made was construction of the roads. All roads lead to Rome. That's kind of where that saying came from. And so um, these are the, the very roads that allowed the ease of the spread of the gospel during the times of the apostles. And so you see God using uh, what men do to advance his purpose. And so we see that very clearly here with the Romans. And then this is interesting, and this kind of plays into... Um, our study as well, and we'll probably reference this from time to time, but the Romans were natural polytheists, and a, a true polytheist has a just a very um, open concept of divinity, you could say, and um, so they believe that there's a controlling spirit over every important object, class of objects, every person, every process of nature, so whatever you could think of that happens in our world, in some ways, they were very animistic. Maybe, you know, I'd, I've heard a story, you know, um, uh, tribal people, a lot of times are very animistic. And, and what, they'll, what they'll do is they'll, they'll be cutting, you know, they'll be cutting vegetables for dinner, and then they'll cut their finger with the knife. And then they'll, you know, instead of saying, oh, I need to be more careful, they say, that knife's bad. That knife's demonic. I'm going to get rid of the knife. And they kind of blame it. And so what would happen in a polytheistic culture is say, well, man, so I don't cut myself anymore. I probably ought to sacrifice to the God of a knife. But imagine how that would play out in your daily life if you did that. And that's what polytheism did um, in the Roman culture. And so there were so many gods. And by definition, because they believed this way, they were very tolerant of other religions. But only tolerant when you were indefinite in your thinking. In other words... Yeah, this is just my God. You mean you can have your own, you can have your own gods. But the second you said, no, there's one God, that's when the tolerance kind of drops off the map. And so we see that kind of develop, I think, as, as the Romans figured out that that's what Jews taught, and not only Jews, but Christians taught. I think that's where the, the intensity of persecution started to pick up later. And so um, they actually thought that if somebody came in and taught monotheism, it could imperil the welfare of the entire community. Because what it would do is it would stop the offerings to all the deities and all of a sudden they're going to be in big trouble because now we're not sacrificing all these deities. So we're not going to get rain. We're not going to get sun. We're not going to get good crops. Knives are going to start falling out of the sky and cutting us everywhere, you know, or whatever they thought, you know, and it, but it would cause great harm uh, to them. And so um, this may explain, and this is uh, very pertinent to our study. If you recall, um, well, I'll tell you what you should recall after we read this. Um, this may explain the expulsion of Jews from the Rome under Claudius in around 49 AD. So the emperor expelled Jews from the capital city of Rome around 49 AD. And it may have been due to this, this concept that they understood they were, they were monotheistic. And we'll talk a little bit more about that too. But remember when the book of Romans was written, if, we're, if we date it right, it's about 56, 57 AD. So we're looking at, you know, seven or eight years after this expulsion from Rome. And so we're going to see that that is probably um, something in the back of Paul's mind in terms of a purpose for writing this letter too. And we'll, we'll see that kind of play out as we, as we study. Um, history tells us that the expulsion of the Jews was enacted because of the commotion excited among the people by Crestus. And this is actually how it's spelled. 
which many have thought is a colloquial or mistaken form of Christus or Christ. So, um, you know, in those days, the, the emperor might have thought, in fact, many people thought that Christians were just a sect of Judaism. And so it it might have been something going on with the Christians in Rome. Maybe they were making ground, making headway in the gospel. And the emperor got kind of wind of this. And he said, well, monotheism, that's going to, you know, destroy our polytheistic. And and they said, well, who's doing it? And he said, well, it's these guys following this guy named Christ. They're basically Jews. Okay, get all the Jews out of here. And so that was, may have been what happened. Or it could have been, you know, he really wanted to get rid of the Jews um, it may not have been anything to do with Christ, but that's, that's what we have in history. And it's a little unclear because of the spelling, but some have conjectured that maybe it was the Christians causing the commotion because people were no longer worshiping um, all the gods. So we're going to see in this letter that the audience is mainly Gentile. However, there's a mixture of Jews as well. And so we'll kind of, we'll kind of see that uh, as we go. Now, some more historical perspective, but, but really as it relates to the church in Rome and, and how, where Paul was when he wrote it and those types of things, we know from history, um, anyone want to take a shot at pronouncing that guy's name? I think it's Abrosiaster. If anyone has a, a correction, you can let me know later, but he's a church father from the fourth century. And, um, he wrote that an apostle did not found this church. It wasn't founded by an apostle. That's what one of the things they knew. Um, we know from the book that Paul definitely didn't find this church. He hadn't even been there yet. He's going to kind of let us know that. Um, so it's interesting. So how was the church founded? You know, it wasn't founded by an apostle. Uh, it wasn't founded by an uh, apostolic delegate. How was the church founded? Well, interesting because back in Acts 2.10, uh, we read that visitors from Rome, Jews and Gentile proselytes, who were in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and Pentecost. And they were probably some of the group of 3,000 converts that got saved that day. If you remember Peter's sermon um, there in Acts 2 at the founding of the church when the Holy Spirit uh, was given by the promise of the Father. Um, And we have Acts 2.10 up here that Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. And remember when the scriptures refer to proselytes, it's talking about Gentile converts to Judaism. Um, They'll also refer to Gentile converts as as God-fearers or the devout Greeks or something of that nature. And so what what I believe happened, and and just as as history, you know, has played out, and we know that an apostle didn't found it, that probably some of these men and women who got saved um, during the message of Peter, when they put their faith in Christ, they took the message back to Rome and began to share this message in the synagogues. In fact, we see Paul's uh, way that he kind of did um, sharing in the synagogues. In fact, we can go to Acts 17 and really just pick up his model. You know, if you ever wondered what did Paul do when he went to the synagogues, you can kind of see it in Acts 17, 1 through 5 for his methodology. And basically what he went in is he took the Old Testament scriptures, he just worked through them, and he says, okay, you're Messiah, the Christ. And remember, Christ, and I say this jokingly, but, but it, I think we need to be reminded, you know, Christ was not Jesus' last name. You know, it wasn't Joseph Christ and Mary Christ and Jesus Christ. You know, Christ was a, was a title. It meant Messiah. Um, looking all the way back to Genesis 3.15, when God promised a deliverer um, to Adam and Eve, your seed should crush the head of the serpent. I mean, it goes all the way back to there. And so the whole Old Testament is pointing forward to this Messiah. And so when Paul would go into a Jewish synagogue, let's, let's read Acts 17. Uh, one, you're going to see his method. 
He says, now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, notice that phrase, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. Well, what scriptures is he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament. Verse 3, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. So this was his method. He would work through the Old Testament scripture and he would show Jews that their coming Messiah, the Christ, had to suffer and die according to scriptures. In fact, when we read in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, we read the gospel that Paul preached. What does he say? That Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. So Paul could preach a gospel message from the Old Testament. And that's exactly what he did. And so he would use the word of God and he would say, okay, here's a passage that talks about your Christ has to suffer and die. Here's a passage that talks about the Christ is going to have to suffer and die. Here's a passage that talks about how the Christ is going to die and come back to life and be raised again on the third day. And then he completes his message. They're with him at this point. Oh yeah, I can see that in the word of God. I can see that in the old Testament, but notice in, in Acts 17, three, and he says in the middle of verse three, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. Ooh, talk about a dividing line. (laughs) This man, this this carpenter's son from Nazareth, that's him. That's that's who the Old Testament's talking about. And then in verse 4, some were persuaded, a great multitude of devout Greeks. There's our our Gentile proselytes to, to Judaism. They had now transferred their faith to the Messiah, Jesus. And not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas, but verse five, but the Jews who were not persuaded becoming envious took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason sought to bring them out to the people. And so you got this, this wild response, you know, as long as they're showing, oh yeah, the Christ had to suffer. I mean, they're sitting, they're listening. They're listening. The second he said, it's, it's Jesus of Nazareth. That's your Christ divided response, you know, and isn't that. The case today, I mean, you can talk religion, you can talk Bible, you can share Bible verses after Bible verse, but the second you say that Jesus is the only way to heaven, you have that dividing line, don't you? Some people don't want a savior. They want to get there on their own. And that's the most tragic decision that anybody can make because nobody can save themselves. And so I believe that some of these converts from Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, probably took this message back and probably shared it in the synagogues and probably used the Old Testament to show that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ. And I believe that's how the church got started in Rome. You know, we also see just uh, because of business reasons that Rome was a magnet. It drew people from all over the empire to do business. You know, it'd be like maybe the equivalent of New York City in our day, where it's just this melting pot and people going there to make their fortunes and and to start businesses and to become rich and to do things. But you had all these people traveling in and through Rome, this, this commerce uh, city of the day. And so I think that uh, maybe some of the other believers from around different parts of the country had actually come into that church and helped build that church up. And so we see that this, this happened. And, you know, if we do the time frame, if Paul did indeed write this letter around 56 to 57 A.D., and they, this group who got saved at Pentecost went back and started the church. You're looking at a church being in existence about 20 years by the time Paul wrote this letter to them. So they've, they've got some history. They've got um, some time under their belt, if you will. Now, what was Paul doing during this time? Well, 
He had set out on his third missionary journey. He had labored in Ephesus for a little over two years. And it was said while he was there that all Asia heard the word of God. And um, I'll bring up a map in a second and show you what we're talking about. But he goes, he leaves Ephesus. He goes to Macedonia and then he goes south through Macedonia and he winters in Corinth. And that's where we believe he wrote the letter. Um, And so again, here's a map. Um, Here's Ephesus over here. He kind of used that as a, as a stopping point in the school of Tyrannus. It says that all of Asia heard the word of God. We believe that's how the pastor in Colossae got saved, Epaphras. Probably um, also how Philemon got saved. We looked at that story uh, a few weeks ago. But all Asia had heard the word of God. He's, he was there for a little over two years. And then he traveled over to Macedonia and then worked his way down to Corinth. And so he's writing the Church of Rome from this area following his third missionary journey. Now, we also know that Paul's intention after he wrote this letter was to go back to Jerusalem. He had a... Uh, an offering that he had been collecting from Gentile churches all up and down Macedonia that he was going to give to the poor saints in Jerusalem. And so Paul was planning after he made that trip home, delivered that gift, observed Pentecost with the believers there, he would hop on a boat and head straight back to Rome. That was his plan. That was his plan. Now, God had different plans, but that was Paul's plan. That was what he was hoping to do. And so why did he write this letter? What was the purpose for uh, the book of Romans? What was Paul's purpose? Well, we can kind of pick up a few of these purposes as we read through the book. But um, we see that his missionary efforts had taken him all the way, almost all the way to Rome. He had not quite made it there. And so what he does while he's in Corinth, he decides, I'm going to write this letter. I'm going to communicate with this church via epistle. I've heard so much about them. This is the church in the Empire City. And then he was going to let them know, I'm coming to see you soon. I want to come visit with you soon. And so that was really the the main purpose. But we see that um, he wrote to prepare a way for his intended visit to the church and further west. Again, we had talked about Paul's buy-in to the Great Commission. He really wanted to use the Roman church as kind of his jumping off point into Spain. And you'll see that as Paul kind of did that in his missionary journey, he kind of, he kind of had a jumping off city. You know, when he's, when he's reaching the churches in Galatia, it was Antioch. And he kind of went to Galatia and he came back to Antioch. And he went to the Galatian churches again and came back. And then when he moves out further toward west toward Asia, his, his home base was Ephesus. You know, he was there for over two and a half years. We know he spent about 18 months in Corinth. And so you, you've got where Paul would get into a situation and function like a home base, um, you know, tagging up at home base, coming back. Uh, taking, taking a break from his labors and, and maybe even getting more support at that time. But we're going to see that he uh, probably had this in mind for the Roman church, that they would be his home base for him to reach the last frontiers of the then known world with gospel, which was Spain. We also see, um, I think, number two, that he wanted to record a, a systematic and detailed presentation of the gospel he preached. Now, I think Paul had a, had a hunch that when he went back to Jerusalem, that things were not potentially going to go too well. And um, where do I get that from? Let's go, let's go back all the way to Romans 15. Romans chapter 15 and in verse 30, he, he's imploring the, the Roman believers to pray for him. And he says this, Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. And notice this next Request in verse 31, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe. And that, and that's the phrase I want to focus on that. I may be delivered 
from those in Judea who do not believe. You know, Paul, Paul knew that his life was in danger by going back to Judea, to going back to the saints uh, in Jerusalem to deliver this gift. And he, and he specifically says, basically, pray I get out of there alive. You know, pray I can get back to you. Pray that I'll be delivered from their hands. And we know from history that almost didn't happen. They almost killed him right there in the temple. The, the text almost gives the indication they were trying to rip him apart like wild animals in the temple because they believed he had brought a Gentile in there. And it was the actual Roman guards that stepped in and saved his life. And then we know further after that time that he was in custody and there was a, a group of men who had taken a vow that said, we won't eat or drink until we kill Paul. We're going to wait for him on the road and we're going we're gonna to slaughter this guy. We're going to take him out. I, mean, I always wonder what happened to those guys. They probably get starved to death because <laughs> Paul lived a few years longer than, than when they made their vow. And then we see that he was two years in prison in Caesarea, and then he had to appeal to Caesar. And then he was, took that, that faith, almost fateful ship ride to Rome where he was shipwrecked and where he was bitten by a snake. I mean, just <laughs> you read the account in Acts, and then he's two years in prison in Rome before he, before he gets there. And so a lot of things happen. God delivered him but probably not the way that he was, um, according to the way he was praying, right? God took care of it, but probably not the way he was thinking God would take care of it. And so I believe that Paul wrote this letter thinking, I may not get back to the Roman church, so let me pen out in full and concise detail what I teach among all the churches. And that's why I believe he wrote, one of the reasons he wrote this epistle. This is a little bit more subtle, but reason three, um, definitely open for discussion on this if you like to discuss these types of things. But um, I believe the Roman church was facing potential internal conflicts between Jew and Gentile believers. And I, I believe part of the reason for that is uh, the edict of Claudius. Um, if he did expel the Jews, there's, there was just a natural probably anti-Semitism that grew um, out of that. And you know that people that... Um, are anti-Semitic before they get saved. It's not like the moment they get saved, they drop that. Sometimes we carry over things. And so I think there might've been a little bit of that. Why do I say that? When we get to Romans 9 through 11, Paul takes, takes a time out from his flow of thought and says, hey, by the way, don't get too high-minded Gentiles because God's still got a plan for the nation of Israel. And um, don't get too high-minded. Don't think that the church now has replaced Israel um, in terms of all the blessings that he promised them in the Old Testament. Because, by the way, church, if God doesn't keep his promises to the nation of Israel, how do you know he's going to keep his promises to you? If God can change his mind on these unconditional promises to the nation of Israel, we well, can change his mind on you. And you've got no hope. You don't know if you're going to go to heaven. You don't know if your sins are going to be forgiven. Because you don't know if God's going to change his mind in the future. So we need a God that keeps his promises to Israel. We need a God who's going to be faithful to the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's what Romans 9 through 11 deals with. And so I think he, if there was no conflict at the time, I think he's cutting that conflict off at the past before it happens. And quite frankly, there are many believers in our day that need to hear this message. Because there are people out there, and it's, it's a theology you may be familiar. It's called replacement theology. They believe the church has replaced Israel. And it's, and it's a heresy from the pit of hell. That's not true. Because if you don't have a God who keeps his promises, then you, you don't have a God at all. You've got a tyrant. You don't have the God of the Bible. And so I think he was cutting some of that off at the pass um, in his purpose. Now, what are some of the themes of the book? Okay, and we'll, we'll kind of close out here this morning. Look at really three, I think, important themes in the book of Romans. And to look at the first one, let's go to Romans 
chapter 1. This was the verses um, that Bill read for us this morning. One of the important themes of the book of Romans, and those of you that like alliteration, you'll remember this, right? Romans are, righteousness are. There you go. You got the whole book of Romans. It's, it's about God's righteousness. Not, not only how do, we ob- how do we obtain it, how do we live it out? Okay? How do we obtain God's righteousness? And then how do we live it out in our daily life? And so the book of Romans is, is all about God's righteousness and how it can become man's possessions. Let's look at Romans 1, verses 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And then notice this next phrase, verse 17, for in it, in what? That's the gospel. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And see, what we find from the book of Romans is that man needs a righteousness that's equivalent to God's righteousness in order to go to heaven. And so the first three chapters go through very systematically and said, no man has this. No man possesses this. There's none righteous. No, not one. No one can obtain this or get this on their own. And so we see that righteousness is obtained as we get into the end of chapter three. It's obtained when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the righteous one who died for our sins and rose again. That's how we're justified or declared righteous before God. And so we've got to understand that, that Romans teaches us how we can gain this righteousness. But we also need to understand that uh, righteousness practically lived out is not lived out in the strength of the flesh. In our own strength, duking it out, you know, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, just getting a stronger will and a stronger resolve to just do things. That's not how we become righteous in life. In fact, if you go back to verse 17, notice he says that righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. We're talking about saved people right there. We're, you get justified by faith, but once you're justified, you also live by faith. And that's the other aspect of the book of Romans is we talk about how does a Christian practically live the Christian life. And as one commentator said, this, is, this book is a message of how a righteous God makes people righteous righteously. How about that? That's a Peter Piper type uh, thing. And so we see that the righteousness of God and how it can become our possession is a major theme of the book. Second, we got to see that God, uh, I think we see in this book that God's salvation is full and complete as it relates to sin, the source, and sins, the actions. You know, God doesn't do things half-heartedly. He doesn't start a project and then not finish a project. How many men in this room have projects in their garage that they've started and not finished? And wives, you're not allowed to nudge your husband right now. <laughs> this, but that's how we roll many times, don't we? We start a lot of things. We don't finish. See, God's not that way. God put in place a salvation package that is full and complete. He not only dealt with the penalty of sin, he also made provision for the power of sin in your life. And he also has already made provision to get rid of that rotten, stinking, dirty monster called the sin nature when you die or when you're raptured. He's going to deliver us from the very presence of sin when we get our immortal bodies. And, you know, as you get into Romans 8, uh, it talks about how our bodies groan. Man, and it's, it's more than just physical getting out of bed as you get older, right? We long for that day where we don't have this sin nature just always interrupting us, always trying to dominate us to do things that would be displeasing to God. And yet God has made a way 
in the future to deliver you from the very presence of that thing. I look forward to that day. I long for that day. And so we see that God has uh, provided for the sin's penalty. We call that justification. Uh, He's also provided uh, for sin's power. We call that sanctification. And he's provided for delivering us from sin's presence. We call that glorification. And so we've, we've heard those big theological terms before, but we'll talk a little bit more about those even next week. And then finally, uh, another important theme is just practically living out God's righteousness in our daily life. In the church, amongst each other, um, and in the world. In the, and in the world. And you know, it's, it's, it's always interesting to me because it's always, for whatever reason, it's harder to live out righteous lives with people you know best. You know, and, and you see churches all over the world and, and not just in America, but all over the world that um, just flat out can't get along. Just flat out can't get along. Can't, can't be unified in their thinking. And in and, and church meetings where the unrighteousness that happens is just uh, deplorable and should be despised. And yet it, it starts right here. It starts in our families. It starts in our church family. And then hopefully it pours out into the world. And so we're going to see that, that this is a major emphasis, especially toward the end of the epistle. And so next week, and that's just kind of an introduction, we want to just, you know, anytime we study the Word of God, we want to provide context, right? Because without context, you got nothing. You got nothing. In fact, without context, you can get up and say whatever you want to say, whatever you're prepared to say. Um, but next week, we're going to look at the three tenses of our salvation in a little bit more detail, um, justification, sanctification, glorification. Um, and one last word, if you have not had a chance to get out and vote, um, Tuesday, Tuesday's the day. And so I want to encourage you to do that and just be in prayer for, for our leadership and for our country. Um, and also our study of the book of Romans and, uh, let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for, uh, this morning and, um, much of this morning was academic Lord, but, but let us not lose sight of, of the fact that, uh, of what Jesus did for us in the gospel, who, uh, the one who died for our sins and rose again, the one who, who made a way that we could be, uh, righteous in your sight. Uh, the one who made a way that we can live righteously on this earth in a way that glorifies you. Uh, and the one who made a way that we can be delivered from sin, uh, when we die or when we're raptured and we can just enjoy you for eternity. And so, Uh, Lord, I'm just grateful uh, for Jesus and what he did. I'm grateful for um, how you brought about the book of Romans, how you encouraged Paul to write it. I pray you just bless our time as we study your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.